Welcome to Hedge Fund Tips with Tom Hayes. I'm Tom Hayes, and this is your 218th video cast podcast for the week ending December 21st, 2023. A lot of exciting stuff to cover today, so let's get right to it. Uh, first, uh, just some family stuff at a Christmas uh, party. That was a lot of fun uh, uh, with Annabelle, Mimi, Caitlin, of course. We had a fun time. That's with the girls. They're getting big. Look how tall Mimi's getting. It's uh, crazy. Those of you who've been with us for three or four years, you, you, you're pretty blown away, I would imagine. Uh, so uh, very festive move, mood, Caitlin with the girls. That's me and Caitlin at another uh, party. And then here was a Santa sighting in Stamford, Connecticut, when I was down with the girls over the weekend for their uh, meet, I, no, meet this week. No, it was a game, uh, actually. And, uh, that was coming back from Greenwich. Uh, and then this is Caitlin with the girls at, I think it was their swim team kids party that the invite, uh, adults were not invited to, but Caitlin was a uh, chaperone. Uh, so they had a fun time at that. So there's some holiday photos. Then I want to congratulate my buddy, Mike Bennett who made the Golf Digest uh, top 50, what does it say? Top 50 best golf teachers in America of 2024, 2025. And look, there's a lot of politics, you know, in this, uh, you know, thing, of course, you know, whether he's one or 27, you know, who, who the hell heck knows? The key is they wrote in the book and changed the world almost you know, 14, 15 years ago with stack and tilt method. That's this, this book right here. That's Mike on the front cover. Um, and 2009. So gosh, uh, you know, 14 years ago. And here he is after the excitement, you know, and the novelty has faded away with pretty much all the best ball strikers on the tour using their method, but not calling it that uh, here he is on the list. So if you are a golfer, you need to go see Mike Bennett uh, down in, in Florida or wherever he, he's up. Uh, uh, you can just Google and go to the Stack and Tilt web, website or uh, if, you, if you want a direct introduction, happy to do that as well. Uh, so this is, uh, if you remember from a few weeks ago, I was playing Pine Tree with him and my buddy Gene Mulak, who's great friends with Mike. Uh, he's a Stack and Tilt instructor. He, he, uh, instructor. he taught me, by the way, if you ever get down to the east coast of Florida, Boynton Beach, and can get on Pine Tree. Highly recommend it. Was Sam Snead's favorite golf course in the South. Uh, so that's that. Was really excited to see that. As a matter of fact, I texted Mike, uh, and uh, he was he, you know he's the most humble guy ever, and and one of the greatest ball strikers you'll ever see in person. Uh, and um, you know he's like, oh, thank you. You know, like <laughs> he didn't even know it was there. Maybe I don't know if I was giving him news or whatever. But uh, anyway, uh, so John Templeton, the time of maximum pessimism is the best time to buy and the time of maximum optimism is the best time to sell. We are going to determine where we are in that spectrum on this week's videocast podcast because uh, while everyone thinks that everyone is bullish now and there are no bears left and therefore we have to correct again, uh, that might not be the best interpretation of the data. Uh, that's out right now. So uh, first and foremost, here's one that I saw in the Wall Street Journal, uh, percentage of stocks within 10% of their record highs. And, uh, you know, you look down to the COVID lows in March, we actually, 
surprisingly got that low uh, or very close to it in May of 2022. And we're barely working our way up from, you know, single digit percentage of stocks uh, with within 10% off their record highs to now we have about 22, 23% uh, of stocks within 10% of their record highs. And, you know, you should see 40 to 45, uh, maybe even 50% before you start to get worried about major corrections like you saw in 2015 and 2016, like you saw in 2020, which is interesting that we got that high one month before COVID. And then uh, 2018, uh, January 2020, uh, 2018. So um, this does not look like we are at an extreme. Uh, breath is just starting to catch up. And um, this is kind of a natural thing. You come off the lows, you check back like we just did, you kind of bounce around and then you start to get closer to the extremes, but that's many years of upside and we're gonna unpack that today. Uh, going back to market breadth, this is from Goldman Sachs Investment Research. Uh, yes, a lot of stocks are starting starting to participate uh, uh, the last couple of weeks, but they're barely coming off the mat. I, like I tell you um, repeatedly that opportunities like this with the type of companies that we've been able to buy uh, and are still buying. And there's one more with that we've uh, built a position this week we're gonna start to talk about um, that have such huge runway ahead of them. And you know, as you get a year, two years out, there's always opportunities and there's always stuff to do and there's always sectors and countries and companies out of favor and we'll always find them. But there are periods like 2009 and 2011 to a lesser extent, and 2015 and 16 uh, to a decent extent, and 2020 to a, to a lesser extent. Uh, but you only get you know pandemics once, you know, hopefully once a century, uh, where such high quality businesses are still there's so many of them still marked down 50, 60 percent, 70, some even 65, 70. I mean, a lot of them have started coming up, of course. But uh, we're, we're just getting started. And, um, you know, we open to investors every quarter, um, uh, you know, and, and what we the reason we started doing the quarterly openings is uh, after August, when we opened to one million dollar accounts. Um, and it's just because of the amount of people that were pent up that were coming in every quarter. And then we could open it, get it all done in one week, and then close it up and deploy all the, the small accounts. Um, you know, <laughs> I had a guy call me uh, this week that we've been talking to, and um, and he's, he, you, know, you know, congratulations, Andrew's coming in. We're, we're very excited, and he's going to deploy about $15 million with us, and uh, we're going to get him started right away. So, you know, if you're doing $5 million or more, you don't have to wait for the opening. The idea of the openings is so we can just take a lot of the small accounts in all at once and get that administration out of the way, open it up for the small accounts, close it a week later, and then you know maybe open it up quarterly for a week so we can just get all that done, get all the admin done, not be distracted with it, and then just focus on investing and everything else we have to do for the quarter. But if you're deploying big amounts of money, uh, congratulations to Andrew, by the way, 
uh, then, um, you know, you, you should reach out and we should determine, you know, what, when it makes sense and how it makes sense. So, uh, and if you're smaller, uh, you know, if you're going to be doing $1 million counts, um, you know, we'll, we'll open up, we'll try to open up once every quarter to let you all in at once, uh, and then take it from there. So, uh, we'll, we'll try to keep that rhythm going, uh, on a quarterly basis to give everyone an opportunity, uh, but not hold up the ones that are really making big commitments. So, that's where we are right now. Breath, as you can see, uh, breath hasn't this. The last time you had opportunity with breath like this was three times, 2009. And I keep it's interesting. We keep looking at it. We keep skinning the cat from different directions, and it always points back to we still have the best opportunities here since 2009, 2015, 16, and the COVID lows. And people are like, they just can't see it, and they they're starting to see it a little bit now. Uh, but they're still so bearish that they, they think, you know, the minute the calendar turns January 1, it's all going to whoosh. It's all fake. Well, earnings growth is not fake. Margin expansion is not fake. Lower cost of capital and discount rate is not fake. Uh, so, uh, I don't, you know, refinancing, uh, opening up and deal flow opening up in 2024 is not going to be fake at all. Uh, and speaking to some of the companies, uh, more positive news for Crown Castle uh, announces comprehensive fiber review and additions to the board. So Elliot got everything they asked for, which is uh, two people on the board seat. They're going to uh, hire the new CEO. They're going to review the fiber business, uh, quote unquote review, which means uh, determine how much it's worth to sell it and then uh, cut costs and make the return on, in cap, return on invested capital for the legacy 40,000 towers just hum and return that capital back to shareholders. So that is well on track. And uh, uh, yes, it's had a big move. And yes, it's got a lot more in front of it. Uh, then you had uh, Autosar, uh, thanks to my buddy. You know who you are over at Morgan. Stanley, uh, this is the Autosar in the U.S. turning up. You can see, um, you know, what, what's really interesting about the auto industry, by the way, it was falling off the cliff prior to COVID, 2018, 2019, uh, as it does every kind of uh, cyclically, uh, whether it's the early 90s, whether it's 2009, et cetera, early 2000s, uh, and it's starting to turn up abruptly. But this is just the national and i think as we get you know i think we talked about 16 million sar for estimates or 16.1 million sar estimates for 2024 uh i think no one's got modeled you know we were counting on incentives we weren't counting on rates to come down as dramatically as the futures market is now pricing it um it could just be this unbelievable combination on, on both sides. And it seems like people are leaning back towards ICEs. And I think there's going to be an, a, an explosion of hybrid sales in 2024. Um, that seems to be the hot new thing, which helps Cooper Standard because they make a little bit more on the hybrids than they do on the ICEs. There's more parts. But then when you look at Global SAR, which is mind boggling, Global SAR peaked in 2017. That's when uh, Cooper's stock was $146. Um, this, you know, it got down so low in 2019 and then 2020, you had uh, that thing down. But when it had that spike off the low by November 2020, if you remember the stock, 
you don't have to remember, but um, I'll show you CPS. If you remember uh, when Global SAR, the stock rebounded. Remember, it dropped from 146 down to six as Global SAR was rolling over from 2019 to 2020. When it had that spike in Global SAR before the semiconductor shortage, uh, it spiked from six to 47 in about uh, from January, or look, looks like February of 2020 to, you know, in about nine months, it went from $6 to $47 before the semiconductor shortage uh, started. And then it collapsed down to, you know, we started buying uh, at six and then it went down to three uh 50 and our basis was 550 and then obviously we have some newer uh, uh uh clients in and at 12 and 13 and stuff like that um that came in a year later but um you know as we look at this global sar number forget it getting back to 2017 which it will over time um we're at the levels now where the thing ripped back up to $47 and I think we're going to see some really good things out of Q4 uh earnings because all the pricing was in place uh little interruption on the volume with the strike but I think they're playing massive catch up as a matter of fact so you know, here we are, Global SAR was 90 million, dropped down to like 50, and then when it spiked up to, looks like about 78 is when the stock hit 47, then you had the semiconductor shortage and the refinancing problems, uh, and now we've just spiked back up to around 78. So as the earnings confirm it, uh i think we're gonna see some really really good things i think this thing's gonna rip so um uh going according to plan what can i say so that's good news uh auto workers deal boosts u.s indu industrial production uh so you know that, that's showing up in the macro data that's coming out the production levels that are coming out of the oems and then you've got um article here on buy now pay later which is good for paypal we did about an hour on paypal last week uh you definitely want to take a, a, a check out that stock if you think you've missed uh everything uh you will as months uh unfold but um some of these things are are uh <laughs> barely leaving the gate yeah they're up 20 percent in a couple of weeks blah 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 but um <laughs> these things it's it's really exciting times. That's all I can tell you. Okay, hedge funds sour on crude oil with least bullish positions on record. So what I've been, I've been saying, you know, our two of our biggest trades in 2020 at the pandemic lows, and many of you were here, and you can go back and listen to those, were um, banks and then energy when energy turned negative and we did our same normal plan when there's chaos and dislocation we buy the highest quality assets in the most hated sectors countries uh, uh companies in the market 
Uh, and we did that in uh, 2020 with Wells Fargo and um, uh, Exxon and got basically overnight doubles and triples. And uh, that's when no one wanted it. And then by 2021, when we were saying sold to you, when all the people that were uh, down on energy for the entire way up, and I can give you all their arguments of why it would never recover and ESG and uh, JP Morgan wouldn't lend to energy companies and uh, ESG companies would boycott the banks that would lend and they were only 2% of the S&P and all the BS that we had to talk about for a year uh, until everyone got uh, excited about energy. Um, same thing we're doing with China now. It, it, they didn't believe it. And then in 2021, everyone wanted energy 2021 2022 you couldn't give it away at the highs so we did give it away at the highs sold to you uh and then and we've just been waiting and sure enough with all the excitement about energy uh energy was the worst performer this year and now people are getting negative on it and i love that this headline came out hedge fund sour on crude oil with least bullish positions on record i think that the EMP companies have not, and the integrateds have not come down enough. Uh, but uh, there are, there is one natural gas company that we own, and uh, well, there's two that we own, but um, one that's come down enough that we were willing to take our cumulative basis up in order to increase the position. And we felt that it was um, has come in enough that uh, it made great sense as a brand new position. So this was a relatively small position. Uh, we have a, a big longer term position, which we've talked about many times. This was a, a relatively smaller junior position in the, in the natural gas, uh, which we're going to talk about that we've now made a decent position uh, in the last couple of days and we're comfortable with our sizing here. And um, like all good value investors, we know it will go against us before it goes for us and we'll probably top up in coming days and weeks, uh, you know, as uh, people all jump on a, a few percent and it'll come back five or seven percent and uh, we'll, we'll do our last uh, uh, top up. The only reservation I have is seasonally the oil patch can um, be weak into February. Uh, so we do run that risk and that'll give us an opportunity to add more if that weakness does show up. But uh, the liquidation value of this business is, you know, uh, 3x where it's trading right now. And that's just proved reserves uh, minus enterprise value. So unproved is unknown, could be a lot more than that. Uh, but I, I just saw and felt too much pessimism around natural gas and energy in recent weeks that I've been looking for the right way to start an expression and be open to that what gets pessimistic becomes more pessimistic, in which case we would be blessed with the opportunity to get a more meaningful position uh, that we can stay with for the next three to five years as the dollar weakens and as demand in emerging markets goes through the roof. 
and as China comes back online and all of those other things that are going to drive the boat. So uh, this is the first sign. So we want to have a beachhead. We're not doing energy. We're not doing oil yet, uh, but uh, we do love. Uh, well, now two, but one. You know, I mean, I'm up nine x on on the other one uh, that that we've had for years. Uh, this one, I think, can be a multi-bagger uh, plus over the next few years. So um, we'll 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 go into that one a little bit. I love this article in the best financial publication in the world, bar none, which is Barron's by Andrew Barry. And he put out his top 10 favorite stocks for 2024. This is not a guy who blows with the wind. This is a guy who's thoughtful. And uh, his number one pick for 2024 is Alibaba Group Holding, uh, ticker BABA. You may have heard of it before. And uh, he lays out the case. I mean, it's nothing new that you haven't heard before. He says Alibaba is one of the cheapest tech-oriented companies in the world by a long shot. After dropping 18% in 2023, Alibaba's U.S.-listed shares trade for just eight times projected earnings in its current fiscal year ending in March. With that decline, the stock at a recent $72 is back to where it stood following its 2014 uh, initial public offering, despite a tenfold increase in revenue and a fivefold increase in earnings, and by the way, cash flow. These guys read my stuff, uh, so you know if you've heard the, a similar argument before. But it's not rocket science. Anyone can look at the numbers and figure that out themselves. Uh, its market cap is less than fifteen percent of its closest American peer, Amazon.com. Let me say that again. Its market cap is less than 15% of its closest American peer, Amazon.com. The company sits on a small amount of cash equal to a third of its current market value of $184 billion. Adding in its core Chinese e-commerce unit, its cloud computing and logistics businesses and a stake in Ant Financial, the sum of the company's parts, uh, comes to about $130 a share, nearly double the current stock price, according to analysts at China Merchant Securities in Hong Kong. Alibaba isn't risk-free. It delayed plans for IPO of the cloud software business due to U.S. chip uh, export restrictions and faces growing competitive pressures in China. But headwinds from the Chinese government's crackdown on big tech and a sluggish domestic economy are reflected in the stock, says Steve Galbraith, managing partner of Kindred Capital Advisors. 10 stocks for 2024, so uh, shows a forward P.E. of 7.3 dividend yield now of 1.4 you'll all be getting dividends in january which is kind of funny but um all of the conditions we've been waiting for are now here as the calendar turns and people are willing to put this on their books that'll be the start and uh this will be one of those stocks that people hate to death at 200 dollars mark my words and will love to death at 250 to 300 dollars and uh, and that's when, like like we did with energy, we will be saying sold to you, just like commercial real estate. And they hated Vornado at 13, 14, 15, 16 dollars. Now they're starting to like it at 31, 32 dollars. Uh, uh, and we rang the register last week, as we talked about on the call. Um, so it's rinse, repeat. Human psychology never changes. You know, I was talking to someone at a Christmas party last night. Uh, he's like, don't you worry about telling all of your secrets publicly? I said, <laughs> number one, if Buffett didn't tell me his quote unquote secrets, I wouldn't even have a career. Uh, and number two, 
you can know everything mentally and most people do you know it's like how do you lose weight eat less exercise more uh but whether they do it or not number one and number two whether they have the discipline and the temperament to to do it you know i got an email from a very seasoned person uh in the business who's a financial advisor last friday because cooper standard was down for a minute and he said i'm getting really worried about the price action and i literally couldn't believe it like um it was surprising to me and the reason it's surprising to me is how does some schmuck cleaning off their books or getting a margin call or uh you know getting liquidated or putting a market order or some stupid thing that causes the price to make an erratic move for five minutes um impact what the us and the global saar that sell through is going to be in 2024 it makes no difference why would you care about what the ticker on a stock thing does because some moron on a friday in december has to sell his five shares of Cooper Standard to buy a PlayStation for his kid. Who cares? It, it has no bearing. And that's the thing that few people can, can really internalize. And that's why I say um, it, it's in your DNA or it's not. I don't think this can actually be learned. The more I do it, the more I realize it cannot be learned because you can get it intellectually, but the understanding of what you own and and owning it like you would own a private business you know you don't mark to market your package of ten thousand apartment buildings every single week you just take a look and look at the rent roll are people paying their rent aren't people paying their rent is cash flow going up is cash flow going down and then if a trend persists for some time and it becomes a little bit alarming let's say your cash flow on the apartment uh units uh is down 7% for the year and you say, huh, do I have to mark this thing down? Like, you know, why is cash flow down? Are we in a recession? Has unemployment ticked up? Is this a temporary impairment? Is it a permanent impairment? Has the neighborhood gotten worse? Has the neighborhood gotten better? Um, um, or or whatever it happens to be. Or you say, uh, no, no, these four people moved out. This will be re-rented in three weeks. There's no impairment or it's a temporary impairment for three three weeks uh, and you would take no marks. But if that happened in a public company where the revenues were off 7% or the cash flow was off 7%, you could see a 50 to 75% move in the stock and then you get some dingbats at the end of the year uh, doing forced selling because they were doing things on leverage or whatever. And you're able to pick up that 10,000 unit apartment building that had a couple vacancies for one reason or another for 25 cents on the dollar. And that's why I, I mostly only do uh, public securities. What Number one, because it's what I love. But number two, it's because in no normal, rational environment could I walk into Disney and offered to buy their company at a 65% discount uh, and take the whole company private. The, the board, they would have me removed by security from the building if I made an offer. And yet, when we built our Disney position, that's what the market was offering because everyone was worried about streaming and a little bit of odd programming that, they, that they're gonna fix. 
And um, and now you got an activist in and he's cleaning the place up and that thing's going to work back up to new highs over the next few years and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So um, price is what you pay. Value is what you get. If you spend 80 percent of your time focused on what's the value that you get and 20 percent of your time on the price, you'll do really well in life. Uh, but the problem is, is most people spend 95 percent on price and 5 percent on value. Uh, I, I almost think in the, even among professional managers, I'm going to assume 90% don't even read annual reports before they buy a security. They don't even listen to the conference. I mean, it's anyway, but that's really good news for people like us who actually do the work uh, or people who are smart enough to lay it off to someone who actually does the work. Uh, so they're not talking about price action like that price action, the price action of my 10,000 apartments. I mean, it's, um, it is what it is. So, um, and I mean, no foul, you know, people are human, they have emotions, all that stuff, but you know, uh, you'll get it, you'll get it over time. Uh, Alibaba, JD stocks rise on China stimulus. This is, uh, there's more to come. So they were up Friday because uh, investors digested a fresh stimulus boost and weighed the prospect of further measures. People's Bank of China offered commercial lenders uh, 800 billion yuan, 113 billion US dollars in one year loans Friday, a record cash injection into the banking system through its one year policy. So that, that, keeps to that continues to compound. Alibaba intensifies focus on combining AI with e-commerce as executives urge to embrace the new technology blah, blah, blah. So they're, they're catching up. They're going to figure it out. And um, and then VF Corp, the price action of VF Corp told us something must be terrible. Well, they had a security breach, just like everyone else has security breaches because the crowd strikes and the Palo Altos and all those guys uh, aren't as great as advertised, but they are what they are. And um, so look, the point is they'll either have to pay some money or they'll figure out how to close it down. Uh, but like every other breach, this, it's the same thing over and over again, three weeks later, or in this case, three days later, I think it was up pretty big today. Uh, no one cares. So, uh, for everyone who sold down 8% on the day they put out that headline, because you were worried about the price action, uh, you missed the whole concept of what we're trying to do here. So, um, okay. Next, uh, Dalian in talks to buy Baba's Ellie Mae for 7 billion. This was the next day refuted, but thou dost protesteth. Um, effectively, they are going to sell off all the non-core assets and they're going to run the leanest, meanest, most powerful uh, cash-backed e-commerce, Taobao and Tmall, and e-cloud business that you've ever seen. They're going to be Amazon part two in China, just as, Am as China's economy starts to hockey stick because they've got the, a, a huge part of their population is 34, 35 years old, and they're going to have one last parabolic run in China. No one can see it. It's setting up right now, and no one's paying attention to it. Fed's out of the way. You need that for emerging markets. Dollars weakening. You need that for emerging markets. China's government's uh, uh, elections are done. Their crackdown's done. Everything's in place. Opinion follows trend. They'll regain confidence. Earnings look good. Multiples are low. Flows will go into emerging markets and all of a sudden everyone who had their uninvestable reports and their downgrades at, at the lows last fall at $58, this fall at $79, um, 
uh, will, um, you know, they'll miss it. They'll be the ones that hate it at 200 bucks, just like all the bears coming on TV in the last two days, uh, you know, saying, yeah, you know, we're bearish or, oh, I could never be bullish. You know, this is all hot air, yada, yada, yada. Opinion follows trend, ladies and gentlemen. So, uh, so look, this is 7 billion. All this stuff that, you know, we've been talking about that they're selling, it's just billions and billions. It's about 67 billions of dollars, that billion dollars that's not even accounted into the price of the stock. Then you add another $63 billion of net cash. You know, you're basically at the market cap before you even get into the earnings power and the $28 billion of free cash flow that they generate every 24 months in the middle of every 12 months in the middle of crackdowns, lockdowns, uh, once in 100 year events. Like, I mean, you couldn't throw it was like the book of Job for this con company and they continue to grow cash flow and, and, and you can't give the stock away. But it was the greatest blessing that ever happened because it enabled us. Uh, in the last couple of weeks to dramatically increase the size of our position, uh, not because we're being reckless and getting over maximum position size, because the rest of the portfolio has jumped so high that we had to add a ton of Alibaba at these low prices just to get it back up to a meaningful sized position relative to the rest of everything that's gone up. So, um, you know, huge blessing in disguise. So there we go. Jack Ma backed fishery and agricultural company uh, 1.8 meters start sale of seafood products via Alibaba's Freshippo and Tmall. So this is actually really good because this guy can, um, he his business is going to be dependent on the competitiveness of Tmall uh, and Alibaba's platforms, and he's going to be able to see firsthand what is working on Alibaba's platforms relative to Pinduoduo. I don't think he has the type of stuff you sell on Pinduoduo or Timu, but um, to competition and what does Alibaba need to do better that these other platforms are doing better and it'll be kind of this flywheel mechanism that uh, he's, he's still in the game is really what it comes down to. Shanghai Disney Resort opens a first of its kind Zootopia themed attraction to capitalize on post-pandemic travel demand in China. Uh, Shanghai Disney Report Resort saw an improvement in third quarter operating results on higher guest spending and attendance. And there was a segment um, on CNBC yesterday. They were just opening this Zootopia thing and they were saying like the spending is out of control. Like people were spending 479 US dollars a day on average at this park. The Chinese people who have been depressed for the last year because they were just getting, you know, basically... Uh, uh, chainsawed out of their soldered shut apartments uh, less than a year ago. Can you believe that? It's been like basically 11 months since they were let out of captivity for the uh, forced physical lockdown in China. So yeah, of course, they were a little bit of uh, punch drunk for the first six to nine months. And now they're like, oh, okay, life is coming back. Let's go to Disney. Let's spend some money. And that's the beginning of it. These are the green shoots, as Ben Bernanke would use, used to talk about. Uh, Alibaba CEO takes direct control of the domestic e-commerce businesses. Uh, so they kicked out the lady who was running the commerce who missed the uh, uh, T-Mall and PDD asleep at the wheel. And this guy uh, has been around for 20 years. He's young. He's hungry. He's smart. Uh, so now he's basically the de facto CEO of the whole company, which is now basically two divisions. 
And the other lady is going to uh, be in charge of the asset management, basically. All right, you keep you can keep a job. Your job is to sell off all the non-core stuff. When you get rid of the non-core stuff, we get rid of you. And um, and that's basically how that's going to work. So uh, Morgan and the market liked it. So Morgan Stanley's Adam Jonas bullish on GM and Ford. I kind of showed you the reports there about the SAR is the basis for his uh, thoughts on that. Uh, Baba further cut stake in Xpeng, which is a Chinese EV by 50 million A shares. So they raised uh, 355 million US. I didn't even know they owned uh, shares in Xpeng. Like there's just, they're just pulling money out of the couch cushions, but it's like adding up to a ton of money that's going to be invested in their two core businesses. That's going to just dominate all of China as this next growth wave accelerates. So uh, exciting. China stock market bulls aren't just being contrarian. Uh, despite concerns about China's economy, some prominent strategists and fund managers are optimistic about the prospects for Chinese stocks. The sense that the economy is stabilized amid property sector struggles, Chinese shares are affordable and parts of the market have proven resilient. And there's a whole article here. You can go through at SCMP. I posted it on hedgefundtips.com. You can also go to hedgefundtips.com and click on terms. This is all opinion, not advice. I don't know your financial situation. Check with your financial advisor before you do anything. Uh, okay, China's mega banks cut deposit rates to further boost growth. And then the Bank of America Global Fund Manager Survey results summary. Thanks to my buddy over there. You know who you are. Uh, and this is very important. And this week, we're actually going to go through the whole thing because um, I want you to understand that while we've had a monster move in the last few weeks, the euphoria at, as defined by empirical data is not even near levels where I would start to be tremendously concerned. That doesn't preclude a few percent of volatility in January and February and three to 5% pullbacks and all that nonsense. Uh, but I wouldn't count on it because the tendency after people have missed out is to not let them in. And for all the people who missed it, the more it goes up, the angrier that they get and the more that they call for a pullback that never comes because they missed it. So the same thing happened in 2020. And you can go back to our podcast when I kept saying that we're going higher because everyone's missed it. And structurally, they've got to play catch up. And that's what they had to do all of 2021. Uh, and, uh, and that was that. So here's the first chart. Most underweight commodities versus bonds since March of 2009. That also sparked our interest in like, do I have enough commodity exposure? And that's why we moved this position up. Uh, old accounts actually took the basis up a little bit and the size up and new accounts we believe entered at a very nice basis uh, in, in recent days um, in the natural gas play. So the November survey covered 219 managers with $611 billion under management. By the way, the vest I'm wearing that says Great Hill Capital is made custom by North Face, North Face which is owned by VF Corp. Uh, so we're uh, trying to help them out with their earnings for Q4. Uh, so that's that. All right. So the percent of investors that think global corporate profit growth will improve. We haven't been this low, but for 
2020, when we were coming off the lows, so call it mid-2020 and summer of 2020, and then early 2009 when the market was ripping off the lows, but the, the, the bull market was just beginning. So, you know, I wouldn't be anywhere near concerned about unjustified euphoria until this is like well above 40 and for a long period of time. And we're nowhere near that. And that's also reflected in this investors who see a stronger global economy in the next 12 months. They're still lower than the great financial crisis lows. How do you how do you have that outlook? This is 219 big boys running and girls running $611 billion of money have this view and they've missed this. Why do we know they've missed this? Because 65% of them are under their benchmark. And that's why uh, when you had that weak bond auction yesterday and everyone thought, here we go, it's all gonna correct. And I put out the article last night. I write them by the way, the night before in, in case you realize I don't like to get up at 4 a.m. or 3 a.m. to write an article, I do it the night before. So just happened the market was up this morning, which was nice. But yeah, I put many articles out that were positive and the market's down 300 points before I put it out. That's that's not what we do. We don't worry about price action. We we, we look at what we're doing. And um, okay. Uh, all right, so percentage of investors that think global CPI year on year will be higher. So that's near the 2009 lows. That's good. Inflation expectations are coming down. Uh, profit outlook is improving. Yes, but it's probably like where it was in mid 2009. Would you, you know? Would you want to be a buyer of equities? It's still lower than where it was after the pandemic lows. It's it's mind boggling. Sentiment. Uh, FMS sentiment improved to the highest level since January 2022. Well, that's one way to look at it. The other way to look at it is it hasn't been this low since summer of 2020. It hasn't been this low prior to that uh, since the uh, Chinese Yuan crisis in 2015 and 16, which was the same setup into a rip your face off rally in Alibaba from 2016 uh, forward that we had the China thing in 2015, 16, just like we had the China thing in 2021, I'm sorry, 2022 and 2023 which we're going to come out of huge in 2024. Uh, but you didn't see sentiment this low since the great financial crisis. I mean, and that was like 2009 and a half levels. So yeah, stock market had started coming up, but um, it's, it's amazing. Most bullish bonds in 15 years. So this has been what's tripped everyone up this year. And what people thought was they were confusing T-bills with long bonds. And they should parse this because it's it's sending, it sent the wrong messages to a lot of people, which is why so many people were offsides in 2022 because they misinterpreted this. Um, and But we have not seen this much bullishness, particularly, in, you know, an exposure to T-bills since March of 2009, when everyone was basically in cash and T-bills expecting the end of the world. We're still there in December of 2023, ladies and gentlemen. This is what you see at 
the bottom of markets, not at the top. People don't go into bonds because they think the equity markets are going to be great. They don't go into bonds because they think equities are going to do better than 5%. They go into bonds because they think equities are going to do worse than 5%. And, um, and they got proven wrong to um, the power of three in 2023. And they're probably going to be proven wrong squared in 2024. Our outlook is high single digits to low double digits for next year. Uh, but positive. And, um, and the reason we think the indices will be more subdued is because the biggest gains are going to be in the stocks that we're in, which are under the surface, which are lower weights in the index, uh, versus the heaviest weights, Magnificent 7, which will do fine, but 8 to 12% fine, not uh, driving the bus. So the biggest gains, the 50 plus percent gains will be in stocks other than the heaviest weights. Um, and uh, and there's so many great opportunities there. Next, um, level of risk that investors are currently taking in their investments. Uh, this is really interesting. This is the one that I've been pounding the table on August, September, October. Uh, you know, this is coming off the mat like it was in 2009, but we're at summer 2009 levels. Would you wanna be a buyer of equities in summer 2009? We're still below uh, coming off the mat of the pandemic lows. I mean, it's it's still really pessimistic and really underway. And people saying, oh, well, cash levels are down to 4.5%. That's not how it works, ladies and gentlemen. First, you get below 4% and then the bull market begins. You know, look at 2008 to 2009. It got below 4%. We're still at 4.5%. It got below 4% mid-2009, and you had a multi-year run. Uh, same thing after the 2011-2012 European debt crisis. Um, you got down below 4%, and then you had the rally for two more years straight up. And we're gonna, I'll, I'll show you what I mean by that because this is gonna be a chart that we're gonna focus on. But here you go, 2012, you finally got your cash levels under four. That's when things took off, started to take off. That wasn't like, oh, cash levels are now down to 4%. By the way, we're not even down, we're still above 4.5%. Once it got below four, then this began multi-year. Then this began in 2016 to 2018. Let's see what the cash levels were there. So cash levels were high, it got down, and then we, we started to move. So slightly different, but the same concept. Meaning, when we get down to 4% is not the sell signal. That's when the bull market is actually starting and the breakout is actually starting. So there's a lot of room there. Then you look at uh, percent of managers who say they're overweight equities. Look where we are, ladies and gentlemen. This is just the first positive bar first month positive overweight look where you had this much underweight in 08 through 09 and then your first positive bar was mid 2009 and then you had many many years of gains um uk equities even worse which is why we still have the small position in asos 
we kept a, a trail on for Rolls Royce, but we had to ring the register after 3x because of the amount of shares they have outstanding. That will work higher and we will get a little action on that, but that was a nice trade and we had to, to ring the register on that. And we had to ring the register on um, Vornado, which in Vornado, we didn't keep a tail on. We just took all the profits because the uh, stock was up 100 to 125, depending on the account. And the options were up as much as three and a half X. Uh, and that's, you know, since March. So since the banking crisis, March, April. So uh, sometimes you can't be a pig when they give it to you. And that's the thing that I continue to emphasize. You cannot control the timing. Some happen overnight like Rolls-Royce, like Intel, like um, Intel we kept a trail on, we still have a third, uh, like Vornado, like Cooper Standard, uh, like, you know, we talked about Wells Fargo and XOM, those were overnight, like KRE, the KRE since uh, March, like um, Amazon since last fall, like Google. Um, so look, that's just the way it goes. Um, Eurozone equity is still underweight. We're trying to find some bargains over there. And then real estate, uh, we still have Crown Castle for the REIT, but we got to figure out how we can get a little more real estate exposure. Um, maybe we'll get a little scare in January, February, and we'll reload on some of that stuff. But, you know, we... We got, we got, we got most of the meat off the bone. You're never going to get the exact bottom, and you're never going to get the exact top. But uh, um, there's, there's, there's always such great stuff to do. Okay, uh, then you saw this chart shows the month and month changes in allocation. So they started to cram into banks in December. Remember, in April and late March, we were pounding the table when you couldn't give them away. Now everyone wants them. And guess what they're getting out of is energy. So we've already got our banks from March and April. Uh, our energy is where we are looking aggressively just as everyone puked out. And now everyone's bearish when they've been waiting all year and it was worth performing. Uh, and that's what we, why we did what we did with this natural gas play, which we're going to cover in a second. Uh, next. This chart shows the FMS positioning relative to the average positioning of the last 20 years. They are more overweight bonds, but they need to distinguish um, T-bills versus notes so people don't get confused. And this represents bills. This represents the short end of the curve. Uh, there's probably some, still a bit more juice in the long end of the curve, which I think on the futures can go to 120 um, over time. Uh, but, you know, we've had a huge move in a short period of time, so you probably get some check back. And they're the most underweight REITs relative to the last 20 years. So we, we got to find, other than Crown Castle, um, more exposure to REITs as we get checkbacks. Um, and then finally, absolute FMS investor positioning net percent. So they are bullish healthcare, which we kind of agree with. Um, biotech starting to rip. We have a great position there. It's done nothing for a year, and now it's going to—it's starting to go up quite a bit, and it's going up fast. So we're excited about that. Uh, they're still overweight tech. We would probably be underweight the ones that have run a ton. We're not doing anything with our Amazon or Google, even though they've had huge runs. We'll just suck it up. We want to continue to own those for the time being. 
They're dramatically underweight utilities, UK, REITs, and energy. So that's where we're going to be focused and discretionary. I think there's going to be a lot of opportunity, as everyone says, the consumer's dead uh, and continues to be wrong. So, um, and even some staples are going to get interesting. Uh, and of course, EM, which is huge. So, um, they're crowded into Japan too, which that's okay. We'll talk about that. Now, the most crowded trades are along the Magnificent Seven. I think they'll be okay. I think they'll be not great uh, outperformers uh, like they were this year. I think they will be underperformers. Uh, but the second most crowded trade is short Chinese equities. And I think they're going to be a lot of faces dramatically ripped off. And um, uh, we're going to be on the other side of that. And the it's it's mind-boggling that to have such a great outcome with that being a negative contributor and that that position next year um i think is i think that's going to be a huge part of the performance to, to put it understatement I, I i think they're because of what we were able to do in the last two weeks um i think we can wind up making more money from the last bit of BABA that we put on in the last two weeks than the entire rest of the entire position that we had anticipated um, ever. So um, we are excited. Moving forward, uh, biggest tail risk, uh, that's just noise. And then best contrarian trades. He said, if you are a hard landing candidate, then you want to be long cash and short Magnificent Seven. Not a hard landing candidate. Uh, for no landing, long commodities, that's why, oh, this is interesting. If you are a no landing, which we are, long commodities, China, REITs, and short bonds. Not sure about the short bonds uh, por portion. Um, so I don't like that aspect, but I think he's correct on long REITs, long China, and long some pockets of commodities. And we like all three and we're focused on that. So. Um, the, the data tells us where we need to go. Here's the article of the week, rally over or just beginning stock market and sentiment results. Now you gotta think about where were people's heads last night when I wrote this, or actually it was yesterday afternoon because I was at a holiday party last night. Um, so here's the chart. And if you're listening to this on the podcast, you really need to go to, for your benefit, go to hedgefundtips.com and bring this article up uh, scroll down to popular post and click on rally over just beginning here on the right hand side. So short term pain, maybe yesterday's sell off in equity markets coincided with another weak treasury bond auction. That minor catalyst was compounded by the low liquidity of holiday markets. Friday's core PCE inflation numbers should put the final nail in the coffin for any Fed cut doubters. We actually got inflation numbers this morning that, that basically did it as well. I doubt you will see any more officials paraded out with a straight face to try to walk back Powell's dovish pivot after Friday's print. We kind of got it this morning. Uh, there is good instinct from many market participants that we've quote, come too far too fast in re recent weeks and must now have a correction. They are probably right uh, and to a degree. And here's what they are looking at, which make salient arguments. Put call ratio is back down to point 
seven and change. That's really low, 0.77, probably even lower today. Call it 0.75. The problem is, is when you come off these heart attack levels, uh, they tend to trend for a long time while the market goes up for a long time. And we got close to a heart attack level in October. So for it to go right back up to a heart attack level would be the exception, not the rule. Certainly plausible, certainly possible, not really probable. What, and all of the, but what, why are they caught? They are caught in recency bias. Well, it was just 160 four weeks ago. It's 0.77 now. Therefore, we have to crash because when it goes low, the, the problem with technical analysis that I've found with most uh, professional technicians is they think that there's equal symmetry to the downside that there is to the upside. And what they continue to forget is that markets go up 70% of the time. And so we just like to play with the odds. You know, if I could walk into a casino and they say, well, at that table, uh, if you sit there long enough, you're going to be right 70% of the time. <laughs> it would be the last podcast I ever did. <laughs> I tell you, and I'd get free drinks the whole way, although I don't drink much. So they'd be out of Diet Coke. But, um, you know, maybe if I was being wild, I'd have a Coors Light. But uh, that's about it. Uh, next, uh, all of the biggest bears who have missed the rally since October 22nd and October 2023rd lows are now reluctantly and resistantly turning bullish. Opinion follows trend. And some of them are keeping their head in the sand and staying bearish and they're getting run over. But um, so here's the headline. I will not <clears throat> mention the name. <laughs> you can reverse engineer it for yourself. But one of Wall Street's biggest bears says the Fed is now giving investors a good reason to be bullish in 2024. Uh, this is the same, I'll just say, group of people who have adamantly and repeatedly and uh, um, been given platforms multiple times a week to tell people, not since October 2023, which is bad, uh, since October 2022 kept people out of the markets. And uh, those are gains that those people will never get back. Uh, that's the bad news. The good news is if they get a good equity manager that understands how to discern between price action and actual value, uh, they can make it back quickly. So um, that's that. The fear and greed gauge got up to greed 73. So people are saying, well, now we have to crash. Okay, the AAI sentiment survey is stretched 52% bullish. That's extreme. Uh, bearish is down to 20%. So quote unquote, no bears left. Therefore, we have to crash. Except for the fact that often you get these type of extreme reads right coming out of a consolidation and a check back. You get that and then you trend higher for another year and a half or two. Uh, same thing in 2013. You get the extreme bullish and then you still trend for another two years up. Um, not saying that has to happen. Maybe this could be a short-term top, but I'm saying that people are stuck in recency bias because they say, well, just a couple of weeks ago, they were only 24% exposed. Now they're 52% exposed or 52% bullish. They were only 24. Therefore, we have to crash. That's just not the way it works. Markets trend up. Um, National Association of Active Investment Managers was 80%. Okay, that seems like a lot. Okay, they came from 24%. That's, that's extreme, except 100% would be a lot more extreme. And you could be at 100% for a long time while you just continue to trend upward like 2021.
than the McClellan summation index. Yes, it's extreme, but it still has a long way to go to be super extreme. Um, on the short term, it looks like it's, well, we were just there in August. Now we're back, therefore we have to crash. Not necessarily. Uh, New York Stock Exchange version, same thing. Extreme, yes. Total extreme, not yet. If it hits a total extreme, does that mean we're going to crash? No. That's mid-rally. Went on for another year and a half. Uh, coming out of heart attacks, these things tend to trend. Uh, option skew, same problem. You get these spikes. People uh, starting to pay up for cat cat uh, catastrophic insurance. Usually precedes uh, catastrophes. Except when you're coming out of a heart attack, oftentimes you get these short-term checkbacks and then they trend. They trend higher and then you get another SKU spike a year from now and you pay a lot more attention to that one. Uh, NASDAQ 100% bullish. NASDAQ 100, NASDAQ 100 bullish percent, excuse me. Um, this is extreme. There's no question about it. Uh, it's as extreme or slightly less extreme than it was in April, I'm sorry, May of 2020. Was May of 2020 a good time or a bad time to be buying stocks? One of the best times in history. So um, why? Because you were coming out of a heart attack. Why? We're coming out of a mini heart attack. So you have to be cognizant that you can get these extreme readings coming out. And that's what fakes people out is they think that overbought always means overbought. Uh, except the math doesn't work after you're coming out of these heart attack situations. And there's a lot that goes into that, but just take my word for it for now. Now is that composite bullish percent? Yeah, it's up. Is it extreme? Nope. Um, percent of stocks on PMO crossover buy signal. It got up to 100. It's backing off. It can stay there pinned for a while um, and it can keep coming back down and the market can keep trending up. So keep that in mind or it could mean it's a short term top. But uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that. Same with uh, PMO, whatever the hell this thing is, P percent of it. <laughs> the reason I don't really care, I I'm just showing you what people are looking at that are bears. OK, and maybe they're not even looking at as many of those. But I, I look at all this stuff and I try to be rationally objective and I say, yeah, that's a that's a warning sign. But why is it different? And it's different because you're coming out of this and I'm looking at positioning and how people are structurally positioned and what has to happen and what is happening with earnings, et cetera. So that's where I get to. Um, so this is, by the way, percent of S&P 500 stocks on PMO crossover buy signal. All of these indicators I have on my website for free. You can just go to... Um, you can just go to the search box or you can go to uh, let's see I think it's called market indicators and they each have a little one minute video uh, okay so what did we start the article with Rally over at just beginning. And then the first part was short-term pain question mark. And we said maybe. And here's the second part of the article. Or long-term gain our view question mark. We are big proponents of zooming out. Those of you who've been listening for a while know that we say two things all the time. Number one, zoom out. Number two, opinion follows trend. 
and while we acknowledge there are aspects that point to short-term, quote, overstretched conditions, we just went through a dozen of them, we don't intend to get too cute with it. Here's what we are looking at. And this is a reprint of the opening chart the above chart shows the last 14 years of multi-year correction recoveries followed by two-year consolidations of gains. So the correction recovery followed by two-year consolidation of gains, correction recovery followed by two-year consolidation of gains, correction recovery followed by two years consolidation of gains, correction recovery followed by two years consolidation of gains. It appears we have just finished a two-year consolidation with about 0% gains for the S&P 500 since 2021. So we are basically just where we were toward the end of 2021 at the end of 2023, a two-year consolidation of massive gains off the 2020 lows straight up to nearly 2022. So we finished this two-year consolidation, which will be followed by a few years of nice gains in our view. So the consolidation, few years of nice gains, consolidation, few years of nice gains, consolidation, few years of nice gains, consolidation. You can also see at the end of each consolidation, the blue box, you get two to three months of a check back before you see the next move higher. So these little circles here, two years of consolidation, you shoot out and then boom, two months of negative gains. Now, because we've zoomed out, this barely looks like anything. But if you actually look at the price tags, 114 to 102 is more than a 10% correction uh, in just a couple of months while you were breaking out. And what do you think everyone was saying in 2012 coming out of this debt crisis and out of the great financial crisis when we corrected more than 10% in two weeks after just having a 20% correction? They all said, we're going back down to test the 2009 lows. And what happened instead? Two years of straight up gains. So this circle, same thing in 2015 consolidation, then you break out, then you get one or two or three sideways to down months uh, and then a couple years of gains, then you consolidate for two years, then you get, see right here in summer of 2020, when everyone said we were going back down to test the lows, that was the uh, battle hymn in mid 2020, uh, two or three months of sideways to red gains over the summer, and then straight up through 2021, completely caught everyone off sides. And then finally, in 2022 to 2023, it looks like we've just had our three months of check back, August, September, October. And as abrupt and aggressive as the last two months have seen, when you zoom out, it's barely just getting started. That would be the equivalent of these two bars here, maybe these two bars here, then you get a little sideways, maybe January, February, March, these two bars, then a little sideways, but the beginning of multi-year. And this is gonna be one of the greatest periods of time to put additional money to, to work uh, than we can find, okay? So, um, okay, so it appears we got the check back. Most people are strangled by recency bias because the last two years have been continuous <coughs> hope dashing, leading to a view 
that this time can't be real and it's time to quote, take profits. I can't tell you how many times I've heard the word take profits in the last 24 hours. So let me repeat that. Most people are strangled by recency bias because the last two years have been continuous hope dashing leading to a view that this time can't be real and it's time to take profits. They may be right for a few percent move, but I would not get too cute trying to play it. Sure, there may be some profit taking in January or February, but do you really want to be out of great companies if they have not yet reached your predetermined target of intrinsic value just to save a couple of Tums tablets for short-term volatility? I do not, and there's not one holding that I have I mean, we did it with Vornado last week. We rang the register because it was at or near uh, the predetermined price that we decided we would get out. We took off two thirds of Intel. Why? Because it was at or near the predetermined target that we had determined we would get out on the basis of the legacy PC and uh, data center business, which we think is fairly valued now. And we kept a third because we're gonna play the dream of AI and foundries. And we actually think if there's a guy who can deliver it, it's Gelsinger and we want to participate. We just don't want to have that much. Um, we are, there's a time value of money, number one, uh, and we're only willing to allocate a certain amount for the dream idea. We buy durable, sustainable, predictable businesses when they're temporarily out of favor. We don't play the prediction game. The beauty of the remainder of our Intel position is that we are playing the prediction game, number one, betting on the jockey, and number two, entirely on house money and then some. We've taken off our principal, we've taken off a meaningful profit, and we've left a portion of the profit to bet on Gensler's dream, which we think has secular tailwinds and we think if anyone can get it done, it will be him. My guess is it will be slower and less magnificent in the short term than he imagines it will be. And in the long term, it may be greater than. And perhaps it will get back down to a level where we can actually increase back the position, or if not, uh, then we have exactly the amount of exposure that we want in a riskless way to bet on a risky outlook without risk, if that makes any sense. <laughs> but <laughs> I don't even know if I understand that, but I think you kind of get the, the concept. All right, now they may be right for a few percent move, but I would not to get too cute trying to play it. Some of them, uh, okay, not reaching. Do you want to give up one to three percent of your equity upside so that your quote monthly statement looks pretty with low volatility when it will only cost you compounding in the intermediate to long term i do not um furthermore i do not want to pay a lot of taxes to the government to have a short-term volatility smoothing uh, which is why we don't do monthly statements. We do quarterly statements and we attract the type of partners that have a similar mindset. Um, I've never since day one optimized for maximum AUM. I've optimized to attract like-minded partners, people that I like to hang out with and talk to because I like and respect them. And I get, I wake up every morning excited to make money for them. Um, 
And those are the only partners that I take and accept. Uh, and it's the secret to a happy life, <laughs> which is what Buffett did. And I just copied everything that he did uh, and added my own, you know, what I do. But there, there will never be another Buffett. So, you know, he's he's the legend. Um, but I've learned a tremendous amount from him and uh, am so grateful. And that's why I do these, not to say this is the same type of value, but it's, um, it's my way of paying forward what was given to me. So uh, they may be, okay, so we've got that. Uh, okay, next. Here is the lens we are looking through and have shared with you since 2020. We believe we are mid-cycle in a normal secular bull market that lasts 18 to 20 years that broke out to new highs in 2013. <clears throat> so we had our own version of this in 2020. You can go back to the articles that we wrote in the podcast. We've been talking about this forever. This is Robert Slumer's version from RBC. I think his graphics are way better than mine. Uh, and his slide making ability is fantastic. Um, and, uh, and he puts out a lot of great stuff. So um, what you see here is just as we looked at the two-year consolidations by, uh, followed by two-year runs, the same is true on a larger scale of 16 to 18 years of sideways consolidation followed by 16 to 18 years of bull marks, 16 to 18 years of sideways consolidation, 16 to 18 years of bull markets, 16 years. So we just got through uh, a huge sideways consolidation uh, from 2000 to 2013, broke out to new highs. And we're about halfway through the cycle. And this is largely based on demographics. We've gone through it a lot. I'll just read my version here. So on this basis, um, you can extrapolate out, you know, all the way through the early 2030s and continued uptrend. So this is predicated on the largest portion of the population being 33 to 34 years old, the millennials and beginning housing and family formation. History shows this consumption level persists until they reach their early 40s and then slows down dramatically. That takes us to, to the early 2030s. Prior to then, it remains a quote, by the dips and corrections environment. There will be plenty of bumps in the road, but the trend is up and it will be a period where fortunes are made due to consumption, innovation, and productivity tailwinds. Let me say that again. That takes us to the early 2030s. Prior to them, it remains a buy the dips and corrections environment. There will be plenty of bumps in the road, but the trend is up and it will be a period where fortunes are made due to consumption, innovation, and productivity tailwinds. Put simply, Fortunes will be made and multiplied over the next six to eight years. If you do not have money allocated to equities or a good equity manager, then you will miss out on a rare period in history. Maybe not in the next few days or weeks. You may even feel smart missing a few percentage of volatility, but over months or years, you will kick yourself. These opportunities show up a couple of times in a lifetime. If you snooze waiting for the perfect dip, you will lose. You only have to ride these opportunities correctly once. Okay, it goes back to the old saying, you only have to get rich once. Uh, and this is one of those rare periods uh, where all the hard work and heavy lifting is done and now you get the free ride. The second half is always the most parabolic and the easiest period 
to make money if you know what you're doing. If you're just chasing what's already up, then you're going to miss it. Uh, and that's unfortunately just human nature. Um, you now I was sharing a story with a friend yesterday and I said that, um, you know, it's mind boggling. You know, obviously Wall Street is the only place when they hold a clearance sale, everyone runs out of the store. And the bigger the discount they're offering, the faster people run away. And yet you offer them, so that's for treasures. For trinkets like TVs, they're boxing out in front of Walmart, breaking the door down for, for a discount on a, on a trinket. But when it comes to treasures, buying cash flows and durable, moated, uh, impenetrable businesses that continue to grow cash for decades and decades and decades, you, you can't give them away. It further goes to the idea, Peter Lynch once said, that people go to the supermarket and they spend an hour deciding whether they're gonna buy the generic cereal or the branded Fruit Loop cereal and whether it makes sense to save 35%. And then they get on the bus on the way home and they hear a stock tip and they put 100% of their life savings in the stock tip without even knowing what the, what the company is. And I don't know why human nature is that way, but it is. And the smart people and the wealthy people who make money in their businesses in their respective fields and as capital allocators, they lay off that expertise because they know no one can do what they do as well as they do it, which is what's made them so successful. So they spend all of their time on that and they delegate to people who spend all of their time on this. Uh, and that's why the rich get richer. I mean, that's really what it comes down to over time is they know how to do that. Whereas, you know, the average Joe tries to do everything. It's like, you know, you, you don't want <laughs> you don't want the cheapest brain surgeon or the cheapest heart surgeon. You're not looking for the you know for the best offer in the Groupon in the mail. You know, uh, get a twenty percent discount on heart surgery this week. Uh, that never works out well. So when you're looking for expertise, um, you want someone that does nothing but that. And um, uh, that that you know that is the period that we're in right now. So anyway, so. You can tell I'm excited about this. I have the urgency of getting everything in place to ride this is critical. And the window continues to close slowly. There's gonna there's gonna be a runway here, and there'll be opportunities every year. You have a five or ten percent correction at some point in the year, uh, and you can put it, you know, and that means some stocks, new new batch of stocks will be down 20, 25%, and you can deploy capital. Uh, but the ones coming off those inventory builds and everything else, they're, they're starting to move. And um, uh, no matter how much I have exposure, I'm always going to feel like, God, I wish I had more. So that's where it is. Um, now, we've talked about some of the specific names in recent weeks. Uh, and our clients can see a number of them in their portfolios uh, as far as individual names that we're talking about now. High yield credit spreads are declining. This is not something that you see when the market's going to correct again. This is coming off a heart attack uh, and it's trending down. So that's good for now. Emerging markets, this is probably the most important chart and I've covered it before, are starting to turn up as the Fed steps back and the dollar weakens a bit. Wow, I've been, this is going a long time. I got to speed it up here. All right. Um, so what you're seeing here is the dollar's coming off the boil. The, uh, levels of the emerging markets, which is still over 30% China, is starting to turn up. And you can see what happened 
the last handful of times we had this. There was also another instance here, and this was a monster double as well, 100% move when you had this cross. But every time you get these crosses, and oh, the reason I didn't cover that one is because the RSI had not been that low. Uh, you get these turns, you get 131% move. This is of the Emerging Markets Index, which means the best companies are up multiples of that, of the index. Um, 131%, 474%. I think we could be setting up for something close to this over the next three years. I think it's going to be the last and final run and it's going to catch people off sides on China and, and they're just going to chase it like there's no tomorrow. Uh, and when Baba's in the 200s and 300s, we'll be getting close to the top and all of the negative people are going to be so pro-China, like, oh my goodness, they've got a billion people and they have all this advanced technology and they've developed their own chips and they don't need the rest of the world and they have more EVs than anyone else in the world, blah, blah, blah. And, and then they'll be buying the Chrysler building in New York City for a billion dollars from people who bought it in the hole this year at $100 million. Uh, and that's when you'll know it's the top, just like the Japanese were buying Rockefeller Center in the late 80s. That's when you'll know it's time to get out of China. When Chinese start buying big buildings, trophy buildings in New York City, we're out. And that's uh, we're going to go back to this one in, in a few years because I'm telling you that's what's going to happen. They'll probably buy. I'm going to guess now. My guess is they'll buy the Empire State Building. They will buy the uh, Chrysler Building, maybe. And they will buy uh what else is iconic that they would buy maybe grand central or one of those buildings um trump will probably lay off one of his hotels to the chinese <laughs> they'll buy trump international and that's when you know get the hell out of china it's over so um there you go uh moving on breakouts and election years this is from robert slumer at rbc uh, we talked a little bit about this. He's talking about it in a different way. So what we've had in this consolidation is what they call a cup and handle. I'm not a big fan of this stuff, but it's what it is is a consolidation that's now breaking out. And, and uh, that's not what happens at tops. Tops don't take two years to top. Um, so the measured move, usually you measure the cup to the hand the top of the cup to the bottom of the cup, and then you extrapolate it forward, which takes you around 5,600. He's doing this, uh, I think, Fibonacci extension or some crazy thing. So he gets basically to the same number, 5,600. So that should be the next point of resistance where we consolidate for a little while. Uh, the election year is favorable. The returns in the first half tend to be sideways. So we'll consolidate some of this big move that goes into January, uh, which will give us opportunity to deploy a lot of cash. And then the second half is when you tend to get the big returns. Uh, the average return, though, um, in presidential election years, uh, in all election years, is 11.28%. So that's where I'm kind of thinking around high single digits to low double digits, uh, as well as the earnings growth and margin growth and multiple expansion we've already had and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, that's kind of how we get there. And uh, GDP continues to go up. Earnings are now reaccelerating. They've basically done nothing for three years. Now they're jumping up double digits. Uh, here's some quantitative stats. Here's from Ryan Dietrich. He says S&P, uh, whatever it was, 50 basis points for a new high. All-time highs tend to happen in bull markets. Shouldn't be feared. When it goes more than a year without one, uh, did you know things get even better? A Higher a year later, 13 out of 14 times, 92% up and up average. 14.9%. So he's saying, well, because we've been consolidating for 
more than a year, in this case, two years, when you actually break out, uh, you tend to be up 14.9, which would be higher than the average of 11. So that's where you could get to, you know, low to mid double digits on the upside um, and then kind of high single digits on the downside. But all the opportunity is going to be under the surface. So don't really care about the indices. We just prefer them to be slightly positive versus slightly negative. It just makes it easier to make money. Uh, institutional positioning. We talked about this in the fund manager survey. Now, remember this. The market is designed to cause the most pain to the most amount of people at any one point in time. It's called the pain trade. And the question is, where is the pain trade? And this is the question I was asking last night when everyone was panicking about algos and nonsense and one day options and yada, yada, yada. And here's the question. <clears throat> if 65% or more than actually 65% of managers are still behind their benchmarks from the beginning of the year because they sold in the hole in October or were skeptical all year or listening to these strategists who were given a platform twice a week to scare the hell out of everyone out of their stocks, quote, what would the market going up more or going back down cause cause the herd that missed most of the move the most pain. So if most people have been underweight equities and equities have run, out, run up, would it help them if the market came back for them to buy or indices came back to come back to their returns? Or would it uh, hurt them if the market kept pushing higher? And I, I'll let you figure out that obvious question. Once you figure out the answer, make sure you're on the other side. And, uh, and that's where I think we are. So um, this, is, uh, this is another picture of the uh, cup and handle with projected targets 5,600. That's the measured move here, top of the cup, bottom of the cup, et cetera, et cetera. This stuff is not, you know, it's, it's coffee talk, but it's, all, it's worth looking at all of it. And you take it with a grain, a grain of salt. But <clears throat> there is some history behind it and it's worth keeping in the back of your mind so long as the fundamentals and the earnings and all the other analysis syncs up with it. All right, so the position that we actually initiated for some clients and took the basis up for those who have been in it for a while because uh, we're profitable on it from our original basis is Comstock Resources. And this is not gonna be one of the heaviest weights in the portfolio, but it was a small position and now it's a decent position. Um, and we do love all the negativity around net natural gas. Um, we could see some more weakness into February, which would enable us to make it a more meaningful uh, position, but we're happy with the size at present. And uh, basically, Jerry Jones, who owns the Cowboys, uh, bought the Cowboys in the early 90s for $150 million, most of it debt, almost went bankrupt, figured it out, got a loan from a bank two years later, and the rest is history. Um, he basically contributed Haynesville assets in 2018 when every no one you couldn't give away natural gas stocks, which is when, by the way, we bought range resources, uh, which went against us before it went for us. We used the against us to bring the basis down to 410 and you know it's been as high as $37. Now I think it's $31. Uh, that one's got more room to go. We think um, conservatively that can go to 60, which off a 410 basis, you do the math, uh, is gonna be a, a huge one. And it took five years, but when you get a 10X 
well, it'll be a 15x or 14x return, uh, five years is not a long time or six years it'll take or seven years, it doesn't matter. Um, and Comstock, we think we, it can be a multi-bagger from these levels. So Jerry Jones has put about $1.1 billion into it. He contributed those assets at $7 a share. So the stock is trading at about $8.80 um, where we bought here. I think it's, what is it now? Eight. Oh my God. All right. So now it's pushed up to $9. Um, all right. So $8.80. So you're not far off from, from uh, Jerry Jones' basis in the stock, which is pretty good. Comstock is an independent energy company operating primarily in the Haynesville Shale, um, a premier natural gas basin located in northern Louisiana and east Texas with superior economics given its geo and geographical proximity to the Gulf Coast markets. Uh, as of December 31st, 2022, 99% of the company's proved reserves were in the Haynesville and Bossier, Cheryl, Play, and Comstock Resources, the largest producer of natural gas in that basin. Uh, 617,000 acres, 470,000 net, drilled 118 wells in 2022, average lateral length of 10,100 feet. Uh, I think the record ever is 14 or 15,000. Its drilling program replaced 216% of its 2022 production. Um, estimated future capital costs to develop proved and unproved reserves as of December 2022 is $4.1 billion, um, which will come out of cash flow, by the way. And um, so that's that. So here's the quick summary, and maybe we'll do it more detailed in coming weeks. Um, the interesting thing is this is, a, I couldn't find the article that I've covered before I think I've covered before talking about basically when it comes to oil and gas, you want to bet with Jerry Jones. He, he basically did it twice. He did it in the 70s when oil was in the toilet and he did it again in the 80s when uh, oil and gas was in the toilet. And then he took that money and um, and this was after failing at a chain of pizza places that didn't work out. Shakey's Pizza. Um but he did it in oil twice. And then I think he had like 30 million. Uh, I think he, he basically had $30 million of cash in the late eighties from buying oil and gas reserves in the mid eighties. And he bought the Cowboys and he basically just levered up, gambled, cut a lot of costs, caught a break, got a hundred million dollar loan and he was off to the races. But what he's saying here, is that, you know, I think his net worth at the time of this article is like $14 billion and $4 billion of it was from natural gas. $1.1 billion is what he contributed to Comstock, which at the time of this was up a little bit. Um, he says the greatest wealth is in the gas, talking about his assets, potential value. Potential value. He says, quote, it's much bigger than the Cowboys. And we couldn't agree more. Um, Let's see here. Uh, I don't think there was a lot more about the gas, uh, but you know, he emphasized the greatest wealth is in the gas. It's much bigger than the Cowboys. So he owns 65%. This is the proxy here. 
Uh, he's the sole general partner of Arcoma Drilling LP and Williston Drilling LP um, and Blue Star Exploration Company, which owns 182 million shares, which is 65% of the company, which means only 35% of the float is outstanding. So I'm a partner side by side with Jerry Jones. Um, actually, uh, before this week at a lower basis than he had of $7, but uh, now it's, you know, at a higher blended basis, but in the ballpark of where Jerry Jones owns 65% of the company uh, with one of the best natural gas guys in the world. Um, so we're partners, Parry Pursue, which is a, which is a good thing. Uh, and I get to basically ride on his coattails, but I'm doing so with a massive margin of safety at a great time. Why? Because natural gas has just collapsed again. And um, and I don't need it to be super high to make a ton of money because he's the lowest cost producer and he is near shipping right in the Gulf. So uh, and demand is growing and Russia pipeline and 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 energy transition, cleanest form of fossil fuel, yada, yada, yada. So here's what Comstock looks like. OK, so we had a bunch, I think. At, four or six i don't know the base i should have wrote down the basis before i bought all the stock because now it's like higher but anyway the point is it doesn't really matter if it's at four or if it's at eight now the point is it went up to 20 and now it's back down to not well now it's 913 so it was 880 um and it could go back to six in which case we'd make it a real position really sizable but it's at eight or nine um, and we think this is going to work dramatically higher. They have increased the share count, but they've also increased the production and the cash flow per share. So as long as it's non-dilutive increase of share count, we will live with it. Their balance sheet is clean as hell. We're going to talk about that. Uh, but we think we're setting up like a similar period for emerging markets and these type of companies that you saw from 2003 to 2007. Tech had, had cooled off. Dollar had come down off the boil. Emerging markets took off. Demand took off. Demographics were favorable. And it's back to the future. So a company like this has massive operating leverage, just like Cooper Standard has with cars. Uh, and you could see this thing rip, rip higher uh, quite a bit. So I love these levels. I also kind of, honestly, as much as it's exciting to buy it down here, and it, it was and it is, you have to wait longer. The fact that it's already kind of broken out and it's now checking back, you probably have a lot less time to wait if, if you being honest about it, but um, I liked it down here and I love it up here too. So I think it's going a, a tremendous amount higher over the next three to five years. It'll be bumpy in the meantime and we'll add along the way. Uh, but I do like where commercials are positioned as far as natural gas. Oh, so here's the point though. So in this whole run from you know 2000 to 2007, where the stock went from $10 to $400, um, natural gas prices, they certainly were higher than they are now, okay? But uh, you know they had their spikes and drops, but they started, remember the move started in 2000, you had this early spike, and then you had this crash down here in 2002 before you started the long-term sustainable move. And I feel like that's where we are in the energy production. So um, remember you had the spike up and then you had the crash down in 2002. Well, that's kind of what we're seeing right now with this check back. It'll consolidate for maybe a bunch more months 
before you make that final move where the supply and demand imbalance with the emerging markets taking off uh, causes this. So interestingly enough, you know, with the correlation of biotech to BABA and rates, and now rates coming down and both are going to take off, um, uh, I think this is also highly correlated. And, and I want to get maybe a little more exposure even than we have now. But I'm pleased that we got enough exposure at a really good time and a really good price uh, and hope to get a bit more in coming weeks. So um, that's that. I'm not going to have time to do these third quarter results because I, I guess I've covered a lot about markets today, but we'll do it in the future. The, the, the number one thing that I want to get to here, and they've got a partner now to uh, with the pipeline, Quantum Capital, so they don't have to pay as much. And it's a rev share until the partner gets their money back and then they get the big uh, lion's share of, of it moving forward. So they structured that. Cleverly, uh, here's the record of all time, 15,726 lateral feet. They're doing an average of 10,500 um, in the last quarter, 11,000. So they're very efficient. That's what's made them the low, one of the things that's made them the low cost producer. Here's what is the most important thing uh, for me is the PV10 uh, SEC proved reserves. Uh, I basically view it as liquidation value uh, and that doesn't include the unproved reserves, uh, which was the same thesis with um, Range. And the, the beauty I love about this is Range has got the Marcel Range is the best in the Marcellus shell, uh, and now we've got uh, which which now does the uh, terminal out of Maryland Cove Cove Point uh, that Buffett bought, by the way, from Dominion, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, but now we have exposure to the Gulf shipping. Uh, and this is the best play for that, run by the best operator who I have a Parry Pazoo position with, and he's telling me it's worth more than more than the Cowboys, which I 100% agree, and I think worth a lot more over the next three to five years. Um, so basically, liquidation is 5.5. They've got you know an enterprise value of about. Um, Five billion. They've got debt of two and a half. They're matured. Their balance sheet they cleaned up. Uh, they got no maturities until uh, twenty twenty seven, and then twenty twenty nine, and then twenty thirty. Rates are going which direction? Down. Uh, so the balance sheet's going to get better and better and better. Their free cash flow, operating cash flow, positive, even with the price dropping off in the last few months, which gave us the opportunity to get. Uh, new people into the stock, which is exciting. Uh, so everything is in perfect setup for this. And I hope we get opportunity to lean into this even more, but I'm happy that we got what we got. Oh, and by the way, if I didn't mention it, you get paid 5.75% to wait with a beautiful dividend coming out of cash flow every single year. So you can buy T-bills and get your four and change uh, and never get any upside uh, potential like all the people are crowded into, or you can buy Comstock resources, get your 5.75% and maybe have a multi-bagger over the next three to five years. So that's how we're thinking again about it. Again, it's opinion, not advice. Nothing's guaranteed. There's risk with everything, but uh, we likes it. We like it very much. All right. Earnings. Uh, Dow 30. Uh, cumulative earnings power for 2024. 
down 1.14% in the last 60 days. The NASDAQ tells a different story, up 2.78% in the last 60 days. So basically nothing to see there. And then today you got the uh, core PCE prices came in at 2% versus 2.3% estimates, down from 3.7%. Uh, and then tomorrow we're going to get the one that the Fed looks at, um, core PCE. And that should tell our PCE price index as well. Those should tell a similar story, and that'll put the nail in the coffin for the cut doubters for next year. Rates are going down, not up, and that is not in any of the analyst models for 2024 earnings, is that the cost of capital and refinancing is going to go down, and that's going to go straight to the bottom line, and that's why I think earnings are going to be higher than 245 and multiples are going to come down. So for everyone parroting on TV, well, multiples are 19, therefore we need to correct back to 16. Uh, they're missing the E part of the equation and why the E can go up. Uh, okay, uh, okay. The, the podcast is over. Now I start the ask me anything questions. Ite Naman says, Tom, wanted to pick your thoughts about Houthi blockade and potential effect on oil prices, inflation, and trade. Seems to me that most of the West are expecting uh, the war in the Middle East to fizzle out quickly, but my opinion is it's likely to go on for a long time. Could expand more if you find this of interest. Always love the podcast and I'm happy about the PCE report. Um, thank you for listening and sharing Ite and the quite word and the words. Uh, I have no edge on that. I could care less. But what I do know is sentiment is washed out. I mean, I, I could care more. I obviously want to see peace. But as far as from a businessman standpoint, I can have no edge. And anyone who tells you they have an edge on that is kidding themselves and you. Um, so you focus on what you have control of. So if they fight more, you'll have more volatility and more opportunities to buy great companies on sale. And if they fight less, the market will keep going up and you'll have less opportunities to buy great quality companies on sale. And you'll hope that you put more money in now versus waiting for later. And if you uh, so these are things that go in my not too hard box, but don't care box, because it's it's not going to impact the rents that people paying 10,000 units of the apartment building. That's really what it comes down to. And I think about businesses in the same way. Uh, Jackson says, thank you for all you do. Owe you for making me a fair amount of money. Atlanta, North Carolina, mountain golf on me. Uh, in considering a future when I'm living exclusively off investments and might want some dividend yield versus selling shares at the wrong time, I came across Devon Energy. Great long history of pretty high dividend yield. Share price down at the moment. Thoughts? Uh, let me take a look. I'm not really excited about any EMP companies yet. Uh, I am excited about some of the gas companies again. But let's see, DE, Devin. Uh, nah, I'm gonna pass on that. I mean, uh, the thing about energy companies is that you got to buy them when they're really, really cheap and you got to be pretty sure they're not going to go bankrupt. 
And um, if you're buying them after they've already had 10 bagger moves and they pulled back 20%, uh, the business is just too cyclical. And I think oil's gotten ahead of itself. And I love the fact that natural gas is depressed. So I'm going to stick with natural gas right now. And uh, as far as Devin goes, not for me. Uh, hi, Tom. Not doing anything with it, but hard to not wonder about the price. Never mind. This is about the price action. Okay. Michael Pescatori. By the way, that was the right preface. Not doing anything about it. Michael Pescatori, uh, what do you think of consumer staples going into next year, such as Hershey? Uh, I have looked at Hershey a million times and I've been tempted, but it's it's not coming enough for me. So I'm going to pass on that. And I think it'll work, but look at 140 or 120 or 100, I'd be buying like there's no tomorrow. It's such a good business that you're probably okay here, but there's just not enough margin of safety for me. The pullback's not material enough. I I want people to say, no one's ever going to eat chocolate again. Uh, Reese's Pieces doesn't work and uh, causes cancer or some ridiculous thing. And then I get to buy the great business at 50% off when everyone's running out of the building because of the great sale. Right now, it's just kind of like... Uh, you know, 15% off, blah, blah, blah. I, I want people scared. I want the people selling to me, you know, can't run away fast enough. And that's not the case with Hershey at the moment. But I do like your thinking, Michael. All right. Hey, Tom, hope you and your family have a fantastic holiday season. As always, I'd love the video cast and spread the word to friends and family. Thank you, by the way. If you can't become a client, at least, you know, if you want to give back, great. If you don't want to give back, great, no problem. Um, uh, but if you do, please share the podcast with one person who you think would get a tremendous amount of value out of it, uh, and, um, uh, pay it forward is, is the way that I think about it. All right. So thank you for doing that, Paul. Uh, and I know you do. I'm looking at AMN healthcare services, good return on capital beaten down. Looks like a decent opportunity to me if it falls a little more in 2024, Curious on your take on Ammon. Uh, thanks again. Wishing you and yours the best. You too, Paul. Uh, I want to get more healthcare exposure. We got a lot biotech, and that's taken off, so that might be all we need. But I wouldn't mind a couple great companies in the healthcare sector because they're going to have the highest earnings power and the um, lowest interest at the moment. So. So this one's pulled back. Uh, yeah. All right, let's take a look at uh, some of the numbers. AMN. What do they do? Healthcare workforce solutions, staffing services to hospital healthcare facilities in the US. Nurse, physician, technology, workforce solutions, okay. Uh, gross margin, 33%, turn on capital. Let's take a look at the income statement. Oh, I've got to make this smaller so you guys can see everything. There we go. All right, so the revenues have come off 20% in the last 12 months. Uh, from these numbers here, you got to double check those. 25% actually. Um, income, EBITDA, net income, 
balance sheet. Let's see, 20 million of cash, 29 million of cash, billion dollars of debt. So that's what they got. That's that's why it's down. I don't think it's down enough relative to that balance sheet, Paul. Um, a lot of debt relative to that cash and revenues are dropping off. So people are worried about solvency. They still have good cash from operations, which is good. Decent, free, good free cash flow. Uh, so I think you're on to something and I think I agree with you. Let's, uh, I'm not a big fan of resubmitting, but maybe send that one back in if, if it drops another 20 points. Well, I don't think it'll drop another. Uh, let's take a look at that one if it gets back into the 50s. Uh, for 100% sure. Uh, but here, it's kind of like uh, the margin of safety is not super given the trend in revenues, but it's definitely worth keeping an eye on. Um, yeah, let, let's, let's get that thing down a little further before we uh, get too interested in it. Don Williams. Um, fact sheet document went. Oh, on facts, fact set document. Uh, that's video showed that Infotech would be the number one revenue growth next year. Are there any companies in that category that you like we could grab long term that are not big companies like Microsoft and NVIDIA? I love end phase products, EMPH. That's solar. Stock took a 65% haircut. I have been looking for solar. I don't like any, any of them yet. Um, Most of them have crap balance sheets. End phase, maybe. We've looked at that one a million times. I just, I can't get any conviction behind it. Um, and first solar is not cheap enough for me yet. Uh, I'm not smart as you when looking at balance sheets. Second question you asked uh, last week in the AMA, we should spend three years to learn how to do what you do. If we wanted to trade with value in mind, where would you go to learn this? Uh, we need, do we need to go to some Ivy League school or can I learn this another way? <laughs> uh, you don't need to go to an Ivy League school. It doesn't hurt, but it, it's, it's uh, there's plenty of Ivy League guys going on TV twice a week and keeping you out of the market since October of 2022. So Ivy League is not the common denominator um, at all. Um, So I did a podcast on University of Bristol. So go to the Hedge Fund Tips YouTube channel and search University of Bristol. And I did an hour about how to do it. But a few things I would do. If you want to do it for yourself, read The Intelligent Investor by Ben Graham and then read every annual letter that Warren Buffett has ever put out. You can get all that stuff for free. Um, second, read security analysis. And then third, if you're deadly serious, start to read the books for the CFA. Uh, and then you're just gonna have to have a lot of experience. It takes time to get good at anything. Um, but those are table stakes and most people don't even start there. They wanna get to the end game and they just blow themselves up and they blame other people and you know they just didn't do the work. So it's like, uh, um, 
you know, <laughs> beware of the neurosurgeon who says, don't worry, I got this. I've been watching ER for two years. You know, it's just, uh, <laughs> you know, you want, you want them to have a good 10 plus years of experience and uh, working through all different things and seeing things once or twice or three times. Um, so the answer to your question, Sam, is, that's not Sam. The answer to your question, Don, is uh, start with the intelligent investor, and that will save you the most amount of time because you're either going to read that book and it changes your life and a light bulb goes off, or you're going to quickly determine that I don't want to do this 24-7. I don't love it the way that Tom loves it. I thought I wanted to do it because I want to make money, but there are a million other ways to make money uh, once you find what you love to do. I'm not saying, oh, I love to eat candy, therefore I can just eat a lot of candy and get rich. That's not the way it works. But there are a lot of ways to deliver value uh, where if getting rich is important to you, you will be able to do that if you're doing something you love that provides a lot of value. Uh, don't just find something because you think that's the way to make the most money because it's not. Um, uh, just think about all those people who are all over TikTok in 2021 uh with their lambos and now they're all blown up back in their their mom's basements and that's sad it's not, i'm not laughing at that but um you know there was a a mentor of mine named jim Rohn who was life-changing and i and um i was friends with him for many years in my 20s and he helped me and he said that if your income grows dramatically faster than you grow in terms of personal development, in terms of intelligence, in terms of skill set, in terms of um, abilities, your income will quickly revert back to where you are. And I think that happens to many people in this business. They get a lucky streak or whatever, and they think that they're smart and they don't do the work or they never learn the proper framework. Uh, and they just get they get blown out. And I think it happens in many different industries. So uh, the worst thing that can happen to you is you make a tremendous amount of money in a short period of time without having developed the skill set. On the flip side is if you develop your skills so far past where your income level is, when the income finally comes, I can tell you it's beyond anything you could ever possibly dream. And what I would focus on is developing the skills as amazingly and as thoroughly and as aggressively as you can over time and don't focus on the money because the money will come in whatever you're doing. Invest in your education and becoming the best possible person. And when you have that skill set and that experience and that time and that love and that passion for it, um, the money will just hunt you down. And um, it's like Buffett can do a $5 billion deal to Goldman Sachs in the bathtub in 2008. Why? Because he knew Goldman's financials for 20 years in his memory. You know, he didn't have to go do diligence with his clipboard. He said, you need 5 billion, great. Guess what? You're, forced, you're a forced borrower, I get to name the terms. And that's exactly what he did. And he did the exact same thing with Oxy. Uh, and, and, and that's what you get set up for when you take the time to invest in yourself and don't look for quick angles or anything else because none of that's durable. You got to do it right. You got to do it consistently. And, um, and, and it's no different than the companies that we own. It's the exact same thing. You know, if your income goes faster than your 
skill set and your personal development and your temperament and your professionalism, that income will drop right back down to where you are. If you're if uh, if you've become an amazing professional and you're delivering value and the income's not showing up, when it comes, it comes overnight and it's just like you can make up for 20 years in 20 months times five uh, if you've developed the skills. And that's just the way it is, especially at exceptional levels of performance in society. Uh, it's lumpy and it's big. Um, and that's when you know you've hit the top. And um, so it's the same thing with our companies. When we buy super high quality businesses with enormous margins of safety and they're growing cash flow and the fundamentals continue to get better, but the price does not move. When the price catches up to the intrinsic value, the money made in such a short period of time, it's not linear. It goes parabolic and it goes parabolic overnight and it lets no one in. You kind of saw a little of that in the last few weeks with the general markets, but that's nothing compared to what happens with companies. So you have your ones that go up very, very quickly. And then the ones that take the longest tend to make you the most amount of money in the shortest period of time. Think range resources, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So um, it's pent up. There, physics and math are two beautiful disciplines. There's something called an equal sign. And it can only be imbalanced for so long until the, the sides of the equal sign and the equation balance themselves out. Um, so my suggestion to you is to put as much effort on this side, which is your input, your skill development, your reading, your learning, your experiencing, um, your sacrifice, your blood, sweat and tears, your money on the table. Um, and then this side will take care of itself. You don't have to worry about this side. All you have to do is plant the seeds in the ground, put some water on, you know, God will take care of the rest. The sun will shine. The soil will do what the soil needs to do. The thing will start, start to grow on its own and you won't see it for months or years under the surface, but it's building and it's building. And then all of a sudden when that thing shoots out, you see that first leaf come out, it did nothing. You, you couldn't even see it was there. You're thinking it's dead for a year. And then it, two years later, the thing is 20 feet high and you can't imagine how did that happen from a little seed? Well, you did the hard work, the planting, the nurturing, the soiling, and then leave it alone and then great things happen. And uh, it's no different with great companies. It's no different with great careers, but uh, you know you have to sow to reap. And uh, anyone who tells you otherwise is leading you down a, a, a dark alley. So um, Sam Hardy, hi Tom, seeing a lot on X Twitter about how most of the declines in stocks <clears throat> in past bear market cycles have occurred after the Fed has pivoted could you bring your wisdom to whether this time is different? Appreciate all your hard work and watch the podcast weekly. We cover this probably once every two weeks, Sam, but I'm going to go through it again because everyone's probably thinking the same thing. It's the same thing with the inversion. So where these folks are getting caught up is um, recency bias. So they look at the last three instances, the Fed cut because the economy was weakening and you got the great financial crisis and you got the tech wreck and you got uh, 2019, et cetera, et cetera. And the other one that they talk about is the yield curve, which last three times you got bad outcomes. Uh, what they neglect to do is look past the last five minutes and look back to the mid eighties when the Fed cut and you got the most parabolic move from 1995 to 1999 or the most 
comparable period from 1980 to 1982 when the yield curve inverted twice. And after the second inversion, which we've just had another inversion, um, we had the one in 2020 and then a, a recent one, rather than crashing after an inversion, which is the normal case, uh, when you have two close together after one of the steepest uh, hiking cycles in history, like you had in 81, 82, uh, it set the stage for an 18 year bull market. So uh, I don't think we're gonna have an 18 year bull market. I think we've already had half of it. I do think the next six to eight to nine years is gonna be the most amount of money made in the shortest period of time. Bumps along the way, we'll be buying every single bump, uh, but um, or holding tight, uh, and um, and that's how it's not different. It's actually very predictable. What's different is the most three recent times, all three of them had bad outcomes. If you look back prior, and that's what caught all these people off sides, is because prior when the Fed cut, markets went up. So I think we're back into a regime and certainly more comparable periods where that will be the case. But it's a good question. Uh, like your thoughts about owning a name like BTI, this is British Tobacco. Um, I mean, this is this is the literal definition of a cigar butt. Um, I just think there are better places to put your money. I don't think you'll get hurt, but I don't think you will make a lot of money. And if you're buying it for the dividend, I mean, why even in equities? There are bonds you can get. Um, let's see, BTI, why am I getting these silly British tobacco? This is not a complicated one. Let's see, why is it not coming up? All right, let's see. Revenues are coming down quite a bit. That's surprising. I mean, yes and no, I don't know. They keep raising the prices and the addicts keep buying it, but um, sure, this has a ton of free cash flow. Yeah. It's an okay business. It's come back. What do you have, an 8% yield probably? BTI. Nine percent yield. Uh, I think you're okay. I don't love it. It's not really what where I would want to put money. I can see why you want to put money there, and I think it's. I kind of like your thinking on it. Uh, just not for me. There are too many other good things to do, but um, I think it's a good question. I think it's a decent idea. Nice job, uh, Kayla Smith. Hey, Tom, glad to see IWM and small caps are getting the attention they need. I have explained to my brother who made the terrible mistake of selling at Lowe's. What are your thoughts on Hershey's, an iconic American company that looks like it got whacked from the Ozempic craze? Uh, always enjoy the show and gifting North Face this season. Oh, good, good for you. Um, we just covered Hershey's, so uh, I like your thinking. I think it's a great company. I'd just like to get it cheaper because that's me. Uh, Jesse... And I may never get that opportunity, and I'm perfectly okay with errors of omission, not errors of commission. Uh, Jesse, longtime viewer of your videos, want to sincerely thank you for allowing regular people like me. I'm a nurse to access the high caliber information and knowledge that you provide. Could you explain your thought process on determining an exit strategy for a stock? 
I know you always say you know your sell price before you purchase stock, but how does one determine this precisely? Uh, for example, I purchased MDI.TO. There's no way to model a drilling company. I can tell you that right now. It's cyclical and you're gambling. So unless you buy it right, um, good luck. Um, and you have to buy it when it's completely hated. Uh, and uh, completely understand the balance sheet before you get into them. But um, this is probably not a horrible time to be buying them. So I'm going to take a look at it for you because you're probably going to actually, this one's probably going to work for you. Um, Oh, by the way, the other thing I wanted to say about um, Comstock that I really like and noticed earlier today is that um, while Jerry has 65% of the stock, so 35% of the shares outstanding, uh, there is over 20% short interest in the remaining shares. So when this thing turns, the squeeze that we'll see coming out of the gate is going to be meaningful. Uh, I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon, but I, I, I love seeing all these little folks betting against Jerry Jones, who is one of the greatest players in the natural gas and oil space through decades and betting short that this guy's going to lose. Um, it's kind of comical, but they will find out quickly that um, there are things to bet against and things not to. I would classify Jerry Jones in an oil in an energy business as one not to. You know, if Jerry got into the EV business tomorrow, I might join them, but uh, uh, not not for this type of business. So. Uh, all right. So. MDI. Balance sheet. Limited debt. It's growing cash flow. It's growing. Keeping the share account steady. I think you're going to be okay in this one for a while, um, Jesse. I mean, these drillers, you can't really model because you're not going to get regularity in the cash flows and the revenues in a very cyclical business. So you're kind of, you know, I'll usually buy cyclical businesses when they're completely flushed out and I'm 90% sure they're not going to go bankrupt. Um, and you can only be 90% sure because there are always things that you don't know that you don't know, which is why you never have, you know, 100% of your position or, or run with leverage because the number one question you need to ask yourself whenever you make an investment, if this goes to zero, are they taking me out in a stretcher? And if the answer is no, then you've sized it correctly. Uh, so I think you're going to be okay with this because I think the, the, the cycle has a long way to run. Uh, so I would just hang on to it. Um, 
you know, as you get closer in the, you know, as you get closer to fifteen twenty dollars, uh, maybe check back in, and I'll take a look at it. But I don't want to get into that, you know, Tom, get me in, Tom, get me out nonsense. You guys, the, the idea of this is, to, you know, teach you how to fish for those who can't afford to be clients, uh, and then eventually you'll be able to be a client if you want to be, uh, or you'll just do your own thing, which is perfectly fine. But um, Brett Bonner asked, turn around, Tom, would you please be willing to look at Yamaha for the AMA? Uh, should we wait for the price to decline more? Blah, blah, blah. Management revised its outlook. Uh, nothing structural. Da, 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 da. Sure. Thank you for your tips and sharing your opinions. Okay. Thanks, Brett. Uh, Yamaha. I don't, I've never looked at this one. Yamaha. You have, uh, it's a pink sheet. I, I'm not sure which one you want here. Uh, let's see. So that's, this is all Taiwan. There's like three Yamahas in Taiwan. Let's see which one's dropped 66%. Musical instruments? Well, the musical instrument one hasn't grown revenues and I look I know Buffett's in Japan um, I don't like Japanese stocks so I'm just gonna leave it at that I think the demography is against them the central bank has stayed easy I think the bet on Japan over the next two years is actually going to be long yen I think that as the rest of the developed world understand we're in a period of coordinated central bank policy, as the rest of the world gets back on their feet and starts to hum again, and they start to get into easier policy, I think you're going to see the Japanese start to uh, defend the yen and uh, maybe not aggressively go hawkish because they're scared to death of deflation. Uh, but stop the easing policy, maybe uh, ease back on quantitative easing and uh, start to uh, put in a bid under the yen uh, as, um, as as other currencies start to appreciate. So I'd be more inclined to rather than going long Japanese equities, I would be inclined to be long the yen in coming weeks. And um, uh, I, I just, I don't know. I, I don't like these Japanese stocks because you can't They're, you know, at least with China, I know I've got three to five years of, the, of massive growth over the next few years, and then they become Japan. And I want to avoid being in it when it becomes Japan. So why would I buy Japan? Nothing's changed about Japan's demography. They're still a xenophobic nation that has no immigration and low birth rate. So um, I want, and that's not to say they don't have companies that export and all that stuff. I get that. But um, it goes in my two hard box. You know, Buffett did the trading companies. That's kind of a different deal. Um, and I think that's going to prove to be more of a trade than a buy and hold forever like Coca-Cola. Uh, let me just look at the other Yamaha and then we'll leave it there. 
when there are multiple Yamahas, just specify. So Yamaha motor, did this one fall 60%? No. So it's probably Yamaha, Yamaha instruments. Let me just take a quick look at it for you. If it's a foreign country, foreign company, just tell me what they do because there's like 16 Yamahas around the world. Um, all right, let's do this in dollars so even I can understand it. So revenues have gone nowhere for a decade. That's not my idea of a good business, no matter how cheap it gets. Um, I'm sure they have, no, they have negative free cash flow. So that's, an, I'm just gonna pass on that one, Brett, but I like the creativity. Um, Joe Cook, thank you for all the practical commentary. I love and share the show. You've recommended a few books in the past that might help folks learn valuation. I'm also looking to take some online community college classes to assist in understanding valuation and the books I'm reading. Do you have any recommendations which types of classes would be most beneficial? Just study to get your CFA if you're really serious about it. That's going to teach you everything at once. Kaylin Patel, or at least table stakes uh, from, from square zero, then, then it's experience. Uh, Kaylin Patel, I uh, hope you're doing well. Wanted to say thanks for the investment tips you've shared this year. I've been following your um, podcast since February and it really paid off. I just sold my shares of Vornado and doubled my money in less than a year. Now I'm looking at some new investment ideas. Congratulations, Kaylin. I've got a question though. How do you decide when it's time to give up on an investment idea? For example, you talked about 3M uh, in some of your earlier podcasts. We actually did it two weeks ago as well or three weeks ago, but their stock hasn't gone up uh, and it's been a while. Well, number one, it's been less than a year. And number two, um, I will be selling that a lot higher than where it is right now. Um, so from what I learned from you, the idea is to buy good companies when their stock is cheap and then wait for a market catalyst and or the noise to die down. This means staying patient and trusting the original plan. Exactly. I think you answered your own question. But I'm wondering, is there ever a point that you think it's better to just sell and move on if that moment we're waiting for takes too long? Um, how do you figure out how long to stick with an investment before deciding it's time to try something else? I don't, uh, I, um, the facts would dramatically have to change because I do so much work going in that, um, I'm in the time arbitrage business, which is why I use low to no leverage. Um, because they, 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 if you buy right, it's very rare where it doesn't work out over time. And then you'll have some in your portfolio where, like you said, you double or triple your money in a year. Uh, and, and that's why you don't own one stock. You own, you know, we own a concentrated portfolio of eight to 12 companies uh, and then a derivative overlay. So 85% of the portfolio is concentrated. And then we um, use long dated options depending on the type of the account and how we express it, et cetera, uh, to get excess returns. But, um, no, some, some pop immediately and some take multiple years, but the longer they take, the more pent up, the, the higher they go is, is usually the way it works out. Um, and 3M, we are, we are certainly going to stick with. That is one of the best quality businesses in the world. There's a lot of hair. We're comfortable with the hair. That's, you know, one out of a dozen positions. And uh, that one's going to have a nice IRR along with the rest. Darwin Nunez, uh, Z, okay. So this is an interesting one. Hi, Tom. This is from yesterday, Wednesday. Xi talking about Taiwan is getting tiring. 
ADRs fall, sentiment remains low, yet U.S. stocks with big China exposure booms. Too much headache for me. Xi can go to hell. I'm selling Baba. Whoever's running the show behind Xi is insane. So um, I feel bad for you, Darwin, um, and you should do exactly what you think you should do. Um, this is an example who does, of someone who doesn't know why they own the company or the apartment building or the royalty trust or the oil company or whatever. This is someone who hasn't done any work um, and unfortunately is getting shaken out at the exact wrong time. Um, and what's going to happen more likely than not uh, is that, you know, the stock will run up to 120. It'll hit resistance. Darwin will jump back in and then it will pull back to 110 or 100 he'll be out and that'll be the final you know that'll be the next big move up to 160 or 180 and um and that's not picking on darwin because he had the courage to number one listen try to improve himself learn submit a question uh, but it's apparent that he's new to this process and is um you have to invest the time to learn. And that's probably my best advice, maybe if you're new, is don't invest anything, you know? Uh, listen to podcasts, read the books, uh, learn as much as you can and don't do anything for a year. I mean, they don't give you a scalpel in medical school until like two years in. Uh, so um, uh, that's, a, it's just unfortunate because this is someone responding to the quote price action that's going to get taken out of one of the best businesses at the best prices in the entire world or did at the exact couldn't be the worst time in the process to get knocked out. And that's when it happens. And that's what makes those, those, those lows. So, um, I think based on the emotions that you're having around this, because there's not one thing in here, I don't see one line about, free cash flow. I don't see one line about revenues. I don't see one line about business divisions. I don't see one line about customer growth, uh, active users, uh, cloud customers. I don't see any legitimate reasons that the facts have changed that have made you want to sell your ownership interest in the company on the basis of deteriorating performance. What I see here is some noise about some politician that has no bearing because the business has continued to grow cash flow. Uh, the only bearing that the noise is going to have is what price is ultimately assigned. But sooner or later, the pent up price will match the intrinsic value. And when it does, it happens all at once. And um, for many people are going to be unfortunately like this gentleman and miss one of the, one of the greatest opportunities uh, that I've seen in my career. Uh, Justin from Montana, but thank you for writing in and thank you for willing to be uh, public with that. Uh, Justin from Montana. Uh, and that's how we all learn, by the way. So if I sound like I'm hard on people sometimes, it's like that's how every newbie learns. And if you actually survive, uh, most people don't. But if you survive, you can go on to do really awesome things. Uh, Justin from Montana. What do you think about FMC? Uh, I like it. I've been looking at it. I've done nothing. Uh, I hope it gets cheaper. Maybe I'll do something and I'm willing to miss it. My guess is sometime in 2024, when we get a five or 10% pullback at some point in the year, 
Uh, I'll be able to get into this and I'll be happy to do it. I'm not going to go through the financials because I've been going for a long time. Landon Hill, um, and I've already done it on my own. But yes, good, good pick, good everything. I'm going to wait and probably miss it. <laughs> uh, hi, Tom. You said in the past you don't love mining businesses because the operational risk inherent in the bottle. What's your opinion of a name like FMV? The PM royalty space that limits the operational risk and acts as a top line tax collector on the minor revenues. FMV has dropped 30% due to jurisdictional uh, political issues with the Panamanian project that are likely to get resolved in a favorable manner, uh, manner over time as the government gets a significant amount of tax revenue from the project it doesn't want to lose. Uh, this must be from a Canadian. They all they can't get enough miners. They're like mining addicts. Um, There's two things Canadians love, or three things. They love hockey, they love miners, and they love dividends. And um, I agree with them on one of those fronts. Let's see here. Yeah, I see. I see why you like it. I'm going to guess the dividend is huge. FNV. No, it's 1.25%. Huh? No, I'm not taking political risk for 1.25%. Um, yeah, waiting for a political catalyst is a sure way to <laughs> wind up with a lot of gray hair. So, uh, Take it from someone who knows. Vinod Nemaguda, uh, thank you for your content. I have a question on Pfizer. Stock has not performed well this year. It's 47% down. What's your opinion on this, Vinod? Uh, we covered this a few times in the last couple of weeks. Um, the short answer is it's probably okay. The long answer is uh, I want to buy it a lot lower, like in the low to mid-20s. And I'll probably never get the chance, and I'm perfectly okay with that. So um, we've done the financials on other other calls. So I would just say, for me, it's a pass. I think if you're taking a three to five year view, you could probably buy it here. Okay, I'd want to I'd want to buy it a lot lower if I can. Uh, and I think, and if I, it's not growing fast enough where I feel like, oh, I'm going to miss something. It's like, oh, maybe it's the low and then it'll take 10 years to get back to 50. Um, you know, but if I could buy it at like 20 and get a double in three years, that would be pretty cool. So it's just a little too slow moving for me. So I'm going to just leave that one there. And uh, in the meantime, I want to wish everyone a Merry Christmas. Uh, we'll be back next week. Same time, same place. I'll be on Fox Business on Tuesday, the 26th at 2 p.m. with the great Charles Payne. So you definitely want to tune in for that. Uh, in the meantime, make it a great one and bye for now.